Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have a special guest with us, Corey Mascara. Now, Dr. Oz, yes, the Dr. Oz, says that Corey is one of the nation's leading experts in mindfulness meditation. Corey is the founder and head teacher at the Long Island Center for Mindfulness, where he utilizes his extensive professional training in mindfulness, positive psychology, and integrative health coaching to facilitate a client's creation of and movement towards their optimal vision of health and well-being. Corey has undergone professional training to integrate mindfulness within healthcare, schools, and businesses through teacher training programs in mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR, at UMass Medical School with John Kabat-Zinn, Mindful Schools, Search Inside Yourself, and Breathworks Chronic Pain. He has completed his integrative health coaching training at Duke Integrative Medicine, is a 200-hour certified yoga instructor, and holds a master's degree in applied positive psychology, MAPP, from the University of Pennsylvania. In 2012, Corey spent six months in silence practicing mindfulness meditation for over 14 hours a day as a Buddhist monk in Southeast Asia. The experience taught him how powerful mindfulness can be as a transformative practice for cultivating greater peace, clarity, wisdom, and well-being in one's life and became the inspiring force behind his mission to share this work with others. Corey currently serves as faculty at Columbia Teachers College, where he teaches mindfulness to school leaders and principals, and is an assistant instructor for the Master of Applied Positive Psychology, MAPP, at the University of Pennsylvania, where he completed his graduate work. Corey has presented mindfulness to organizations such as Johnson & Johnson, Travelers, Prudential Insurance, universities such as NYU, Wharton Business Schools, and Dartmouth, a number of hospitals and healthcare systems in the New York area. And he regularly appears on the Dr. Oz Show as a guest expert in the topic of mindfulness meditation. You can learn more about Corey on his website at www.limindfulness.com. Corey's teachings and work with clients stem from a deep passion for helping others and personal experience with the transformative power of mindfulness, coaching, and positive psychology. He looks forward to helping you realize the same benefits he and his students have come to experience through his work. Welcome, Corey Mascara. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great. So we're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So 
Are you ready to pour into our listeners? I hope so. You are. I you think are. I am. Yes, yeah. I think you I say are. that with confidence. Yeah. <laughs> so, Corey, I learned about your work after meeting you at an Ed Leadership event mm. where you were co-presenting with Bill Brennan, and you led participants through great experiences in mindfulness. That was wonderful. I also had the honor of having Michael Hines on the podcast, mm. who is an effective, very self-aware leader, very impressive, and he spoke really highly of you <laughs> and that he was working with you on mindfulness, yeah. um, So, which is neat that you're working with ed leaders. I think that the work that you're doing is actually very essential to effective leadership, which is why I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. So tell us a bit about what you do and what led you to this work. So it's interesting. I mean, this is a leadership podcast, and I don't think I would put myself in the traditional category of what we would call a leader, or at least how it's traditionally conceptualized. I would consider myself more, I think, a teacher, although my idea of a leader is anyone that really influences other people. So if that's the conceptualization, then yeah, I would fall into that category. Yeah, that's exactly what a leader is. Yeah. Leadership is about influence, nothing more, nothing less. So, okay, so so, yeah, so I qualify. I deem you a leader. Okay, good, good. <laughs> um, the common denominator of, of my work in the different domains that I'm working in is cultivating mindfulness for people. Mindfulness loosely translates into self-awareness, um, the ability to be present, both our internal and our external experience, and to give us more data about what's going on internally and externally so that we can make more informed decisions about what is the best piece of action or, or judgment we can make moving into this next moment. Mm -hmm. And that takes place in organizations where I'm working with leaders there, I teach at a mindfulness-based leadership course at Columbia Teachers College to teachers and aspiring school leaders, mm -hmm. people coming to my groups to learn about mindfulness as it relates to stress reduction. Which is really high in ed leadership. At least, I yes. mean, that's the realm I know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, just, you mean stress management in general? Stress. Stress. It's really high. Oh, yeah. In the educational setting. Yeah. So I just did a superintendent's day for Great Neck School District. Uh, which was awesome because that was a whole district. It was, we had 900 people, all of the administration, the teachers, the faculty. And it was a four-hour presentation on mindfulness. And stress was a big thing. And it was amazing how engaged they were. Mm. And I think part of that was because I prefaced the entire talk with the privilege it was for me to be there because I think teachers and educators have the most important role in the world. Mm. But especially in America, they have one of the most difficult and most stressful stressful jobs that you can have just with all the expectations that there are on educators from the parents, the students, the administration, state exams, wanting to serve the children but not feeling like they can in the way that they want to be able to. Or there's so many they can't meet individual uh, differences and just a constantly changing educational climate that you can never really move to a sense of mastery. As soon as you do, it changes and you have something else you're working toward. And uh, so it's so just you, you validated them. Yeah. You valued them. And so that's those are marks of a leader, by the way. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's key. When we value and validate others, it opens them up to listening. Yes. To connecting, right? So that's, Absolutely. that's perfect. Uh, it was a real treat. And so just to speak to, you know, the stress and the educational climate, it's it's high. Mm -hmm. It's high. So I'm sure you're busy. 
Yeah, in, in schools a lot these days, yes. And you have to really work at not stressing out because you're so busy. Yeah, right. right? It's, it's my job. <laughs> so now that you know that you're a leader, mm. how would you describe your leadership style? If I were to put it into two words, I would say beginner's mind, meeting people and myself and any setting with a, a childlike curiosity, keeping myself in the frame of mind of I don't know. I'm here mm-hmm. to learn, showing up acknowledging my ignorance as much as I think I might know about this person I have no idea who they are and coming from that perspective being grounded in that allows for me to actually learn something whether it's about the system or about the person in front of me that if I come in with an expertise of like oh I think I know a little something about leadership or what this person needs I've immediately shut a door to connecting with them in a way that will allow me to tap into or uh, facilitate their exploration of what they need. So uh, beginner's mind. You're young. (laughs) (laughs) But you get something at this age that a lot of people, it takes them a lifetime to get. Mm. The fact that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know anything. Yeah. If you look at science, where we learn something new, where there's new discovery, it's at the intersection of what we know and then what we don't know right and it's only when we enter into that space that we have room to explore anything new and the same is true when it comes to people and relationship Mm -hmm. and leadership in my opinion great thank you so much for that now let's talk about some quotes are there any quotes about leadership that speak to you there are two quotes I like, and I don't think they have anything to do with leadership, but I'm gonna, okay. I'll am gonna i try and tie them into that. Okay. Uh, the first is by Parker Palmer. He says, self-care is never a selfish act. It is a simply good stewardship of the only gift we have, the gift we were put on this earth to offer others. Anytime that we take care of true self, we do it not just for ourselves, but for the many lives that we aim to serve. That's a perfect leadership question. I, I think so. And yeah, and my argument would be for that is that often as leaders, there's such an emphasis on service that we neglect the person that is doing, the being behind the doing. And if we don't take care of this vehicle, this engine, it's kind of like having our car in fifth gear all the time and never putting it back into neutral and never shifting or never even turning it off. If we don't have strategies to take care of ourselves, we won't be able to serve others in a way that we really aim to. And we can burn out. Yes, and we can burn out. (laughs) I think that's why I'm being brought in to teach mindfulness often in a lot of these different settings because of burnout. Yeah. Okay. So... What type of leader are you inspired by? Well, there's not an individual that comes to mind, but a leader that really takes themselves and their ego out of the equation. That's hard. It's very hard. How do you do that? Uh, I don't know entirely. I have some thoughts. What I think it is is really connecting to the mission and the meaning behind your work in such a way that it supersedes any sort of praise or positive feedback that you could get. The goal, the intention, the purpose behind it is so large that that becomes the driving force. And we can get in touch with that, but then sometimes in a leadership position, I know this for myself, when you're in front of a group of people, you want to say things in a way that people are going to go, oh, that's good. Or I'll keep it in the personal. I sometimes find myself wanting to say things where I know I'm going to get a laugh or I know I'm going to get a good response or I know I'm going to get, yes, that's good. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's not what people need. 
sometimes people need to hear something that's painful and doesn't give them the, oh, yeah, I like that or that feel-good quote. I'm not about motivational quotes and, and just rainbows and unicorns. Mm -hmm. And so I sometimes have to catch myself and say, what is needed here right now that is serving this person or this mission in a much larger way than just something that I could say that would get nice feedback? So I respect someone that can do that well. Mm -hmm. People like Thich Nhat Hanh, the great meditation teacher, uh, the Dalai Lama come to mind. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about meditation. What led you down that path? Because I know that's what you do. You work with meditation, mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, I know for me, I can pray, but mm -hmm. meditation's difficult. I, it's hard to be still, and yeah. it's necessary. I recognize that it's so needed, Yeah, which is why I, I'm here with you speaking <laughs> and gleaning all this wonderful stuff. But tell us a little bit about that. How, what led you to meditation? Before I do, I want to just uh, touch on something you just said. What distinctions do you draw in your own mind between prayer and meditation? I can actually be active and pray. Yeah. And still be connected, like really connected. Right. You know, as I walk, as if I'm walk, I'm talking with a friend. Like I'm right now, we're active and I'm talking to you. Yes. Right. And so it's that connection that's important yes. for you. And I would argue it's the same thing with meditation. And uh, even Mother Teresa once said, she was interviewed and they said, well, when you pray to God, what do you say? And she said, well, um, I don't say anything. I just listen. And then the interviewer was like, well, what does God say? I'm completely <laughs> convicted, yeah. by yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah. So uh, she goes, I don't say anything. I just listen. And, and the interviewer goes, well, what does God say? And, and uh, she says, he doesn't say anything. He just listens. And then she says, you know, if you don't understand, I can't explain it to you. And I think that speaks to what meditation is on the deepest level. It's just this sitting, being, or walking and being, or standing and being, a deep engagement with our present moment experience. And if that is a, a medium to connect with a higher power, awesome. If that's a medium to connect with yourself on a deeper way, awesome. If that's a medium to connect with another person in another way, awesome. I think all of that falls into the category of what we might call a deep mindfulness or deep meditation. Mm -hmm. And, and so you hear me talk about this and you might think, wow, this guy must have been really uh, spiritual or something. And uh, that's what got him into meditation. And that's not the case. Uh, I got it's into meditation. usually the opposite. Right? Yeah, well, for me, I got into it because of a girl. Uh, I had a hippie girlfriend in college who was into meditation. And I kind of just started doing a meditation practice to more or less impress her. And in a very short period of time, I, I noticed some pretty cool experiences for myself, including improved sleep. I used to wake up 20 to 30 times a night and took sleep meds and all that really worked. After meditating about three times a week for three weeks, I noticed I went from waking up 20 to 30 times a night to about two to three times a night. And that was radical. Stress levels went down, I was able to focus more in college. And just there was this organic uh, sense of well-being that arose without my external circumstances changing which was compelling, so compelling that I ended up going over to Burma in Southeast Asia and became a monk for six months and was living in silence, just practicing meditative techniques, mindfulness meditation, an average of about 14 to 18 hours a day. So that was my full-time job for about six months. So you didn't speak? Yeah, we didn't speak. Every few days we would get a chance to talk to my teacher for a couple minutes just about what I was noticing, but those are very brief intervals. And how was that experience? It was the hardest thing I have ever done in my life, and it was the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. 
one of the reasons I went there was to explore my own suffering a bit. I had noticed at that point in my life, I'm a, a straight, white, able-bodied male born in America, living in America. I have privilege in all domains. So in terms of just oppression, it's not something I've experienced. And in terms of just suffering, I don't have the same stressors as someone else might have. And I also just, uh, I hadn't experienced much tragedy in my life up until that point. And so I came to the realization, just coming out of college, or just the awareness of the fact that yeah, I'm happy right now, but it's because the puzzle pieces of my life are aligning in such a way that who wouldn't be happy? I had a good college degree, good family, good friends. And it terrified me that any of that could have been stripped out from beneath me at any point in time. And I did not know who I would be without those things. So I got very interested in what would it be like to cultivate a contentment that did not derive from external factors. And that became the impetus to go on this retreat and explore, could I sever myself from these things for a while, expose myself to a deeper form of suffering for me and, and see what I could get out of it. And so um, I met a lot of that face to face in terms of extreme physical pain while I was over there, loneliness, uh, sadness, just, you know, when you're sitting and meditating and just being with yourself without anything to do for 18 hours a day, all your demons come up and all the regrets of your life come up and things you wish you did differently and questioning what does it mean to be a human being, just big stuff. And so just to sit through that and work through that was incredibly difficult, but came out on the other side much stronger and with a much greater respect for what it means to be human. Mm. <laughs> you know, Corey, I'm listening to you. I'm pretty impressed because you chose to do that for mm. a higher purpose, right? Yeah. I mean, was there anything that ignited that? You know, it was probably a, the confluence of a lot of different things. One of the things was the breakup with this girl that I had mentioned while I was in college. And we were kind of like on and off for about a year. And I noticed that every time we were together, I was happy. Anytime we were off, I was not happy. And we were together, I was happy. I was off. When we were off, I was not happy. And I just noticed this emotional roller coaster ride that was created by my relationship to something outside of me. And I didn't feel like I had much control over it. Mm -hmm. So that became one of the things I became curious about. Mm -hmm. And also, I was just meeting some of my meditation teachers because I started my training when I was in school and going on retreats and stuff. And, and they embodied something that I had never seen before in a leader, in a teacher, and a human being. It was like they were in this space that could not be compromised. Like uh, they were untouchable on some level, I extremely vulnerable, but grounded in a way that I had never seen before. And I just something in me said, I want that. Mm. And my evolution as a person perhaps was ready for that. I don't take any credit for that. That's just my own karma. And by karma, I just mean like where I was at in my life and what was meant to happen. But it spoke to me. And it was something on a deep level that said, I want to do that. But then you took action. And then I, and I took action. I'm pretty impressed because you took that on. You took yourself on. Mm. Um, so that's great. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. <laughs> What is the best advice you've ever received? Uh, life is not about the answers you get, but the questions you ask. <laughs> so we have a podcast where I ask a lot of questions. That's right. So you should get a podcast. Yeah, I know. I love get... questions. Oh. 
Oh, you would be a great point. interviewer. Thank you, thank you. There's a book <laughs> I'd actually. Listen to it. I'd, su- I'd subscribe. <laughs> Good. I have one. I have one follower. <laughs> um, there's a book called A More Beautiful Question that I just think speaks really well to this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this was told to me by a friend when I first started getting into this work, probably about seven years ago. I was just asking all of these questions, and I wanted answers. Like, what is the meaning of life? What is it? What What are we working toward? And kind of just stopped me for a moment. He said, "You know, Corey, if there's one thing that I've learned," and he was, you know, 50 years older than me. He said, "This life is much more about the questions we ask, and not so much about the answers we get." And I did not get it at all, but I knew there was something profound in that. And it stuck with me and it continues to pay dividends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still don't fully get it, but it, mm-hmm. it, I, it's a guiding principle in my life. It's like biting into something that's great, a great recipe, but you don't quite get the ingredients yeah, yet. Yeah. It's there, it's marinating, but that's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, in leadership, especially in educational leadership, it's important to work with teams. Mm-hmm what would it mean to have a good team Mm. and how could you build that hands down safety i think people need to feel safe Mm. they need to feel like they can be vulnerable they need to feel like they can say something without being shot down they need to feel like they can be themselves that becomes the fertile soil for creativity innovation if people are fearful if people don't feel like they can be themselves if people don't feel like they can voice their opinions you're never going to get real collaboration and i think that's what a team is about you're in a team to collaborate if not just do it by yourself but it's not a one plus one equals two it's a one plus one equals three four or five and the more people you get in there and you create a space of safety where people feel like they can take risks that's collaboration and that's where uh, innovation happens you know i've seen you do that you and bill i mean it was wonderful how you brought together a group of strong-headed high performers (laughs) wonderful people extremely bright yeah and you brought them together the culminating thing that happened and i wish we had recorded it 80 people yeah Everyone said one word, and that one word was the same about how that impacted their lives, what they got out of the workshop. But you and Bill worked as a team, and how you were able to pull all of us together Mm. um, speaks to how you give of yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great that you were there to see some of that. And just how amazing was it that even some people in that circle, they were holding hands as they were saying this. (laughs) You didn't say hold hands. I know, and I didn't even say, and that's something I don't push unless they want to do. And there was a level of intimacy there that was very special. And it allowed for the place to unfold the way it did. And so I guess to address the second part of your question, how do we cultivate that? I think the validation of people first, just so that they feel heard. They feel like whatever they bring into the room is okay. So a space of non-judgment. In my work, I can do something like take people into a meditation. And so I often start any relationship, whether it's one-on-one with a person or I'm giving a talk, where I'll bring these bells and I'll just... I'll ring them and I'll have people see if they could follow the sound of the bell from the moment it begins until the moment it dissolves back into silence. And all that does is just refines our attention to the present moment a bit more. Mm-hmm. But that settles someone's mind. And I think people are so overactive in their minds, so caught up in thoughts, judgments, that they lose touch with a deeper space of who they are. When they can drop into that, they can allow themselves to be a bit more vulnerable. And there's an immediate intimacy that is created when you do that with a group of other people. So getting people like into their bodies, into their hearts, a little less out of their heads, and allowing anything to be in the room and not shooting it down. And that kind of work, what I've observed, 
opens us up to creativity, mm. what you said, innovation, mm. and working together, and how wonderful to bring this to schools, and how it'll affect the kids. Yes. Because the, one of the reasons I'm doing this is because I've seen leadership at a stressful level, and it seems like there's no way out. You mentioned it at the very beginning. You validated all the things that educators and ed leaders and teachers we all have to look at and and face on a daily basis yes um, so to me this is so important what you bring is so important and how you serve in this capacity is so important so mm, thank you um, thank you so tell us about one of your greatest challenges that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life i would have to go back to burma and just the challenge of making it through that experience. There was a, a tremendous amount of physical pain that I experienced when I went there just because of the austerity of the schedule, mm -hmm. meditating from 3 a.m. to around 9.30 p.m. and not being able to sit in a chair, having to sit on the floor, having mattresses that were so thin you could squeeze them between your fingers and feel the bone in your finger, uh, getting like five hours of sleep, eating two meals a day. All of that just exacerbated a lot of pain in my back and... I was going to leave after about six days, even though I had signed up for a six-month retreat. And you could. And I could have. I could have. I could have left. And what I noticed is that every time I was sitting down to meditate, the pain would come up in my pack. And then there were these thoughts that would arise of, this is dumb. Why are you here? You should leave. What's wrong with your body? How much longer are you going to do this to yourself? And then as those thoughts would arise, all these emotions would arise of anger, frustration, fear, doubt, uncertainty. And as those emotions would arise, the pain would get worse. And I saw a very interesting relationship. I saw like the physical pain, that was not something I could control, but the thoughts around the pain was something that was in my influence. And seeing that, maybe I didn't have to take the thoughts so seriously. Maybe I didn't have to fuel them so much. Maybe I didn't have to get so caught up in them. In doing that, I was able to stop the secondary pain. The primary pain was the physical pain I couldn't control. The secondary pain was the thoughts, the judgments, the emotions. I was caking on top of it. Mm -hmm. When I could drop beneath that, it became much easier to just be with just the pain of the experience. So that was actually probably the most challenging seven-day period of my life, even though I could have left. So this isn't even like being in a situation where I was forced to be there. there are other people, obviously, in much more difficult situations. Mm -hmm. So I could opt out, but I didn't want to. And just working through that and continuing just to sit and be with uh, excruciating pain in my back and loneliness, not being able to call my mom or my dad, mm -hmm. and the heat, it was huge, huge learning experience. And when did it shift? The first big insight came around the sixth day where I just became aware of how much I was creating a secondary pain for myself, the difference between pain and suffering, right? Mm -hmm. And it still continued, but that gave me a glimpse of hope. And I, I saw, okay, maybe I don't need to be so caught up in that. And just that realization, just the awareness that I was creating that for myself created a bit more ease and allowed me to show myself a bit more compassion and mm -hmm not perpetuate some of those factors that were leading to that suffering. I just had, had a dumb question, but I'll ask. Please. Did you take a before picture and an after? Because <laughs> uh, you can keep those. Oh, man. In terms of just a physical appearance, if we wanted to see a picture, uh, I lost about 45 pounds while I was there. You can see the difference between just the happiness and the contentment mm -hmm. when I came back than when I first went. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped your life and the life of those around you. Mm -hmm. About a year after I got back from Burma, 
I um I got into the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program at UPenn, and that was a very competitive program to get into, and I wasn't sure if I was going to get in. It's one of the best places in the world to study positive psychology, mm-hmm. which is the scientific study of happiness. So That's I, I cool. so okay, just yeah. were people happy in yeah. the program? Yeah. It's probably one of the most joyful academic settings you can be in. Just the people that come together oh. to explore this work and the instructors there are amazing to facilitate that oh. space. And just studying something like well-being in all these different realms, it's gonna, it's exciting. It's fun. It's different than studying something like depression or anxiety. That's, that's important. Mm-hmm. But there's been such a f- emphasis in psychology since World War II on just focusing on pathology. And this is a field of psychology, a science that wants to look at what leads to humans, individuals, organizations, groups of people to flourish. How do they thrive? So getting into that was just so incredible. And then after going through that program, I was invited back to be an assistant instructor. And so I'll be going there actually tomorrow for one of our modules. And it's been such a rich experience because we get to learn from the best researchers in the world looking at the science of happiness from what is the role of positive emotion, what is morality, what is the role of exercise in the brain, all these really cool things. Do they talk about suffering? Yeah. And the and connection? Yes, because it is very important. But it also with the acknowledgement that there is a huge body of science already looking at suffering and the role of suffering. And this is to help flesh that out. But yes, we do talk. It's not positive thinking. It's not happyology. It's mm-hmm. not, let's just think about um, good thoughts and rainbows and unicorns. It's it's the, the intention to explore what is well-being. And that's also things like how do we work through trauma and how do we grow after trauma and how do we use negative emotions to learn and apply meaning to our lives. So that stuff falls into the category of positive psychology. But the reason that that's been so great for me is because it's humbled the heck out of me uh, in terms of what is happiness. I have no idea because <laughs> there's so it, it's. I'm gonna tell you, you look pretty happy. I would and say, and I look I'm at content. the eyes. I always look at the eyes. Your eyes are happy. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> that my kind of happiness is, is, I think, a deeper contentment in my heart. Uh, much of that has come from just my experiences in in Burma. Even though I, I smile and I, I laugh a lot, I'm not gonna be someone that's always like bubbly. That would be annoying. Yeah, it would be annoying, and it's just not my demeanor. I'm more pulled to like deep concentrated states, getting immersed in a new subject, learning something. Um, That's where I get a lot of my well-being. But yeah, it's just humbled me, that program. Uh, Still exploring what is well-being and the fact that it looks different for everyone. And you know, you said contentment, and I think that's that's key. Yeah. Because you're right. We don't have to be joyful or happy all the time. It's that contentment, that being with yourself and experiencing whatever, and even sadness and sometimes even discouragement. Yeah, there's a quote, peace. It does not mean to be in a place where there is no noise, trouble, or hard work. It means to be in the midst of those things and still be calm in your heart. I think that speaks to contentment. Yes, I love that. And a lot of the listeners are new leaders. Mm. So what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working climate? They Mm. just took on this job and it's not what they expected yeah one you're not alone and get in touch with your why why are you doing this what is the meaning behind it what is the purpose Uh, why did you want to take on this role in the first place what inspires you to want to influence a room of people a group of people or society at large anything that we undertake is going to be incredibly difficult and it's always going to be different than we expect and i think the north star 
the thing that pulls us through all of that and allows us to continue to grind it out and be innovative and be creative and figure out what is going to work is knowing why we're doing this in the first place. Our purpose, right? Yes. Now, would you encourage them to get a coach? Yeah, coach, a therapist. I'm looking for a good therapist these days, even though a lot of the work that I do is some would put it in the category of therapy, although I'm not a therapist. Just to have someone that catches your blind spots. A coach in this context, just to talk, whether that's just for to have a cathartic experience and just say, like, this is really hard, acknowledging that, to throw ideas off of and get some feedback. Yeah, another person reaching out to community. We have this great age of information out there with podcasts like this, books, Google, just type in difficulties of leadership or entrepreneurship. You're going to get thousands, if not millions of articles. So utilize all of that. But yeah, something like a, a coach, incredibly important. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of stuff out there and it's difficult to sift through it, yes. which is why I always tell my listeners to go to my podcast because there's a bunch of great coaches. But you're a coach. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that and what you do. I only work with a handful of people. Mm -hmm. And it's often people that are already very familiar with my work. They've mm -hmm. taken a number of courses of mine. And they're specific in what they want to go deeper into. The majority of what I do is working with larger audiences or groups. And I feel like there's so much wisdom to be had in a group setting that I tell people, if they want to learn mindfulness, do it in a group with 20 other people, 30 other people. I run these. You're going to get more out of that than probably if we work individually, at least to get the fundamentals. But yeah, when I'm coaching my clients, I first ask them, who are you as a leader and who are you as a person and where are you looking to go? What is your vision for yourself? And getting very clear on that. And the common denominator, again, of every interaction that I have is mindfulness. Not to be an evangelist, I just think that self-awareness is absolutely fundamental to any behavior change and being an effective leader or influencer in a positive way. Mm -hmm. So my non-negotiable is always, uh, if we're going to work together, you're going to do 10 minutes of meditation every day as a minimum. And if that's not something you're willing to sign up for, that's fine, but I, I won't be the right person to work with you. So when I'm working with someone, it, that's a big emphasis. Mm -hmm. And then just a continual unfolding of where you're looking to go and how do we do that? So if I wanted to learn about mindfulness and connect with you as an organization, mm -hmm. where should I go? How do I connect with you? Yeah, in terms of just... Uh, yeah, I want to hire you to come and speak to my yeah. leaders. Yeah, so I, first shoot me an email, corey.mascara <laughs> gmail. But um, my website has a lot of the, the different kinds of workshops that I run. Once a month, I'm running these three-hour introduction to mindfulness workshops. They range in size from you know 70 to 100 people, and we're just doing an overview. And a lot of people that end up wanting to either bring me into an organization or their school or their hospital, they'll first come to that just to see, you know, who's this Corey guy all about? Do I like his style? Do I like his personality? Do I like the way he teaches? And then that gives them a good exposure to just how I present this work. So I would say if somebody were interested, come to that workshop. Or if you know that you already want to do this, um, reach out to me and then we'll talk about what is it your organization is looking for, why are you interested in this work, and how could we tailor something 
to them. So what's the website? Uh, www.li, as in Long Island, mindfulness.com. Limindfulness.com. Okay, great. If you just type in Long Island Mindfulness into Google, it'll show up. Okay, great. And Muscara is M-U-S-C-A-R-A. Okay. So, Corey, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. Mm. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? Uh, I think being a lifelong learner is just a, a commitment to ignorance. <laughs> oh. Just a commitment to acknowledging your own ignorance and that there's always something new out there. I feel like a lot of leaders are lifelong learners, but I am that to a T and maybe even to a fault sometimes because any new thing I want, like I want to. You're addicted to learning. I'm addicted to learning. You, you? Michael Hines, Bill Brennan, I know. That's why we're all friends. (laughs) Because we just obsess about new things. I mean, I wanted to go learn tango in Argentina last March. That's pretty fun. Yeah, I I mean, just any time I. And this is the thing, if I see someone that's passionate about something, I can feel that coming out of them and then I want to do that. Like, I want to learn the breakdance, I want to learn harmonica, I want to learn guitar, I want to get better at piano. So right now, I'm really obsessed with deepening myself as a facilitator of healing and well-being for other people. So a lot of my obsessions are related to that. I'm currently doing a 10-month trauma certification through the Trauma Institute with Bessel van der Kolk who's this great trauma researcher, just so I could go deeper into understanding what is trauma, how to work with people that have trauma. Trauma was not part of my upbringing. And in doing this work, I'm seeing that trauma, traumatic experience, whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, this is pervasive in our culture. And it's often silenced and people don't know how to work through it. And and so I just become passionate about well, how, if that's what I'm seeing, I want to know how to do that better. So that's one of the things I'm learning. I'm also learning a lot about Facebook advertising. I'm seeing to get my work more out there, I have to let people know about it. And so just going into what is marketing and going beyond the idea that marketing isn't spiritual, which is a big hiccup for me, or that it doesn't align with the work of mindfulness. I'm finding that the more that I... So you can, needed a coach in that area. Yeah, yeah, I do. And I have, I have mentors that help me just think through that <laughs> yeah. stuff. But yeah, so I'm now I'm obsessed with like Facebook ads and wh- how to do that and what does that look like, oh, you know? Great. It's pretty honorable how you really care about people and their trauma. Mm. Uh, to me, that speaks volumes about who you are as a person because you don't have to, really. Mm-hmm. People who've gone through trauma, maybe they can get it, they can move on, they can get better, they can even help people. Mm-hmm. But to find someone who's not and someone who wants to connect that to me is pretty honorable and pretty special. So thanks, Lily. That's awesome. So tell us what you've read recently that our listeners should read. Oh, <laughs> everyone has to read Deep Work, Cal Newport. I only recommend books that I really believe in. And this is one I probably recommended to 12 people at this point. Seven of them have read it and five of them have come back to me and said this is the best book I've ever read like it's radically changed so Dr. Hines and I like this is our new obsession I got him to read it the second session and we've crafted his life around and I'm crafting my life around these principles in this book deep work which is basically the idea that we live in a society that pulls us in so many different directions with Google with email with social media that even when we're trying to do a project, something innovative, our minds are getting distracted by a text message, a new email, that we might go into it for 10 minutes and then we have to come out of it. And we go back into a project, then we come out of it to check an email. And the argument in this book is that if we're to do real, deep, 
innovative, creative work, something with substantial evergreen value, we need to have time to go deep into something and work against the trigger points, the pain, the discomfort, and to clear out blocks of time for that. So I think any leader that is looking to make an impact, looking to put something new out there as a thought leader, this book can revolutionize how you look at your day and how you allocate your time for things of value. I need that book. You would love it. I've listened to it on Audible's. I need that book. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. Because, you know, it's funny. I can... I can get easily distracted. Mm-hmm. I can also get deep into something, but I can get so deep that it'll take me hours and then I realize my back is hurting. Yeah. You know, and that's not good either. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, there's trade-offs with all of this and uh, we got to be we got to be aware. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so tell us what you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities you have. Well, meditation is a part of my daily schedule. It's most often in the morning, but that sometimes varies depending if I'm traveling or not. And that's just an opportunity for me to just drop beneath the story of my life. Meaning the story isn't the narrative of who Corey is, Corey as a teacher, Corey as a mindfulness person, Corey as a son, Corey as all the different labels that we can put on ourselves of I'm so great or I'm not so great or I'm a bad person, whatever. That's pervasive in our lives. And that narrative... That's a human condition. It's a human condition. It's the narrative that we live by. And sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's toxic. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a much deeper space of who we are as human beings that gets lost if we're constantly caught in that story. And my meditation practice in the morning at any time throughout the day is an opportunity for me to just drop beneath that, connect with a deeper part of who I am that I would describe as the being doing the doing. And just anchoring myself there is restorative, humbling, and gets me back in touch with like a shared humanity because I think it's something that we all share, that deeper space of of humanness. Mm -hmm. So that's a big part of how I anchor myself. And then um, cold showers. (laughs) Uh, I started this when I was in Burma just because it was not a choice. You took cold showers every day, and I hated it in the beginning. But as time went on, I would use the cold shower as an opportunity to be with the discomfort and work with my relationship to the discomfort. Meaning, I would go in there, my mind would immediately go, I hate this, I don't want I don't want to do this anymore, when is this going to be over? And instead of getting so caught up, and I said, can I just be with the discomfort and not panic over it, just stay with it. And I feel like doing that each day for myself, exposing myself to a little bit of pain, a little bit of suffering, and showing myself that I can be with it, it becomes a platform for those other moments in my life throughout the day where it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to grade these papers anymore. I don't want to write anymore. It's like, okay, it's discomfort. In the same way as being in the cold shower is discomfort. And if I could train myself to be with that discomfort in the cold shower for a little bit longer, it primes me to be with the discomfort of writing a little bit more throughout the day or taking care of more emails when I don't want to do that or brainstorming a new project. It helps me come across that discomfort point, stay with it, and continue. So you're intentional about knowing that there's going to be discomfort in the day. Yes. So you're preparing for that. Yeah, it's preparation. And it also wakes you up. (laughs) Tony (laughs) Robbins says, uh, he does this too. He says, I do this to tell my body, I don't care how you feel, this is how you're going to perform. Mm, You're not a victim of circumstances. Right. Right. Awesome. That's great. So you know this, many educational leaders and teachers put in long hours. Mm. How can we maintain balance? Because that's an issue. Yeah. By the way, most leaders, 
I asked this question, uh -huh. and we crash and burn right here. Right, right. So there's a lot of pressure. <laughs> like, boo, 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 I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so I might say something that's a little controversial, but I would challenge people to explore, are you actually looking for balance in your life? I think anytime that we're really passionate about something, we're not balanced. We're into it deeply, whether that's in a relationship, whether that's in our work, whether that's in like a new exercise regimen. And I think a lot of people put pressure on themselves, especially as type A personalities, and especially as leaders, high achievers, feeling that they're going, going, going. And yes, it's a lot, but there's also the feeling like I shouldn't be doing this or I should be taking care of other things. And yeah, in some cases, that's probably true. And maybe you do need some time for your family and you do want to allocate more of that. And maybe you should just hang out and read a book. But I think giving people permission, like it's okay when you have five hours straight where you're going, like give yourself permission just to go, to be in fifth gear. However, that's not sustainable. So the difficulty is people find themselves in fifth gear, but they don't know how to shift out of it. And so when I'm working with people, it's often this energy management of when you're in fifth, be in fifth. But when you have the opportunity to be in first, let yourself be in first. And sometimes that's just five minutes of sitting on the toilet between running from meeting to meeting. But when you're there, actually be there. That's usually not the case. Their mind's already in the meeting while they're on the toilet. Or while, when they're in their car on a commute to work, they're already in their inbox. Or when they're home, they're already at the next day. When you have those opportunities to shift from fifth to fourth to third to second, give yourself permission to do that. That's an art form that takes training, that takes practice. That's why I think something like meditation is so helpful because it allows us to disengage, to shift. But that opportunity to restore when you have the opportunity to gives you then the energy to go full on when you have to. So people think like, oh, I'm mindfulness. I must be about be Zen all the time. No, I'm about give yourself permission to do what you need to do, but do it practically and do it wisely. There's a quote that's going to mind, a Zen teacher that says, when you walk, walk. When you run, run. But above all, don't wobble. So I think a lot of us are wobbling. And I think a lot of the tension comes from wobbling, feeling like when we're still, we should be doing something. And when we're doing something, we should be still. Give yourself permission to do each of those, but do each fully. And to value, you said at the very beginning, just to value that balance, it's needed, right? Yeah. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you mm -hmm. about leadership? Just listen. Would you have listened? You know, one of the okay, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's good. Um, I think my process as a leader and as a teacher has just been to continue to get out of my own way, let go of my own ideas and judgments about what I think is right. And if somebody says something that maybe I don't necessarily agree with, to put aside my own biases and say, can you help me understand? Mm. And I think if we can enter into that space with people, we're going to create rapport, we're going to create environments of safety, and we're going to create places of deep listening where we can really learn what are the needs for this individual, for this organization, for this world that are most necessary right now. And then that becomes our guiding principle. So the question, can you help me understand? Can you help me understand? Yeah. Awesome, awesome. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you wanted to talk about? No, yeah, we, we, we I'm sure deep. I'll think about something we later, but we went deep. This has been great, Lily. So, Corey, I want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Thank you. Okay. It's my pleasure. Great. Thank you. 
Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to masterleadership.org to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of the exceptional leaders that are featured on this podcast. Until next time, bye.